Would you please pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for once again for a day off, just to step back and to gather with your people and hear from your word how we might have the abundant life and life eternal that's found in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And as we hear this story, which for some is very familiar and others not so much, we just ask, Lord, that you would renew our faith, recover our faith, repair our faith, and restore our faith. Because faith is not wishful thinking in the biblical sense. It's found on the reality of your resurrection. And Lord, I ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, think our thoughts now. That my words would be yours. That you would bend our wills to your own and set our hearts on fire with love for you as Jesus appears to his friends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, like I mentioned last week, Luke is still on Easter Sunday, and he spends all of chapter 4 on Easter Sunday and then jumps 40 days later to the Ascension. So these stories are very important for us to be familiar with as we go about this. And so I encourage you to open up with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, or you can find the, the text in the back of your bulletin. Because I discovered something this week that I hadn't really noticed before. And what we see in all three of Luke's resurrection appearances, you see an outline that is followed by Luke. And I think in, this, in following that outline, we learn a lot as well as Jesus ministers to his disciples who are huddled up in the upper room, great confusion, great fear, and great anxiety. You know what? That describes much in our world today. Much anxiety. You, you got second graders with great anxiety. In second grade, the only anxiety I had was where do I wear my Orioles helmet or my Senator's helmet? Okay? So we have a great news and great hope in this passage for every single one of us as we look at this. And what we see in this outline is great confusion and fear in the disciples. Two, we see Jesus' gentle rebuke. Three, we see instruction in the scripture. And four, a call to be a witness. All right? And I encourage you this afternoon, if you look at Jesus appearing to Mary and the women at the tomb, same pattern. The Emmaus Road disciples, same pattern. But here, Jesus gets deep with it. Why? Because these guys are going to build the kingdom. They're going to they're put it all out there. So he spends time with them in order to make sure that that can happen. And so here they've gathered. And now remember, verse 35, the Emmaus Road disciples have gone back to Jerusalem to tell these disciples that they have seen him. So you have the 11 disciples. Peter has come back and said, I've seen the Lord. And then the Emmaus Road disciples have come. And then to top it off, suddenly appearing before them is Jesus himself. Verse 36. But that's not good news for them. They're terrified. As they were talking about these things, meaning the resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened 
and thought they had seen a spirit. You know, as, as Peter was speaking with them, they nodded, okay. I guess that's true. You know, we trust you, Peter. You've been with us for three years now. Then all of a sudden, Cleopas and his friend come from the Emmaus Road, and they start saying, we've seen the Lord. And they start talking about their experience with the Lord, how he had opened up the Scriptures to them, talking all about himself in the Scriptures, and that when he broke the bread, all of a sudden the veil came off their eyes. They had seen him, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. Like a horror film. Just appears just like he disappeared with the Emmaus Road disciples he appears before them and with a gentle voice greets them peace to you and they're looking at him like they've seen a ghost and he says peace to you you know peace on earth has been his announcement since Christmas peace on earth goodwill toward men but they did not have much peace in their hearts they had nothing but unbelief in a negative way. These hand-picked, Jesus chose these people, all right? These hand-picked disciples were, as the Emmaus Road disciples, foolish and slow of heart. Verse 25 of chapter 24. And so there's great confusion and fear, and you know what, my friends, we would be too. This doesn't happen every day. We, would, we have nothing to compare this to. And so when we have times of great anxiety, great fear, great confusion, pay attention to what Jesus is going to do here because he's going to give them great advice and help for their future ministry and their future walk with him. But the first thing he does is he gently rebukes them. Verse 38, it takes the form of a disappointed question and a physical examination. Verse 38, And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that is, I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. After this, no one could argue that they were seeing a ghost. Right? They felt for themselves his bones, his flesh, his wounds and his wrists and his feet and his side. Jesus was physically there, but there is something different about him. It's a renewed, resurrected body. Notice the text said he didn't come through the door. He didn't walk through the wall. He stood among them, meaning he just instantly ap appeared. This is a resurrection body. And it's also material. It's, it's a resurrection. It's a fact for them to touch and to see. And in moments, the apostles' condition had become one of positive disbelief rather than negative disbelief as when they had seen him a few seconds earlier. Verse 41, And while they still disbelieved for joy, and we're marveling. <laughs> it's the type of disbelief you have when your favorite team wins on a fluke. And you're, you, bought, you, you paid 100 bucks for these tickets. And your team just won. And it's kind of a Hail Mary. And you win. And you, you can't believe it. You shouldn't have won the game. But you did. And so it's that giddy disbelief. What just happened here? 
That's what they're feeling. The literal Greek reads, they believing unbelie- being unbelieving from joy and amazement. It's like, I can't believe this. Well, yeah. So Jesus strikes a crushing blow to those doubts. He goes further. Second half of verse 41. He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate before them. <laughs> and we're going to see this over the next 40 days. We're going to go to Luke's, uh, John's appearances, because as you can see in verse, verse 50 of Luke 24, Luke goes right to the ascension. Well, ascension Sunday is June 2nd. we got lots of things that Jesus is going to teach the disciples over the next three weeks, so we're going to jump to John for a few weeks. And then we're going to spend the rest of the year in Luke, quite frankly. And Jesus is going to continue this practice of eating fish before him. News alert, dead people don't eat fish. And he's in a resurrected body. He's not hungry. You know? He is there, and he sits down, and he's eating. Can you imagine this scene? You're sitting there, watch Jesus eat. It's really quite humorous when you think about it. You got all these disciples sitting there, and they're just watching him eat. But from this time forward, they never doubted the reality of his resurrection. Now he had their attention as he had never had it before. He had to deal with their confusion and their fear by encouraging them to look at his scars and to rest in the reality of his resurrection. I think that's the very first thing that Jesus wants to teach us in our day of great anxiety. Lack of hope. Lack of meaning. Look at his scars. Look how loved you are. And it's true because of the resurrection. Now that you know the resurrection is real, your debt is paid. See, we know that upon our death there's a payment due. That's why we're all afraid of death. But since we know that our, upon our death we'll appear before the Lord and be held accountable, there's one who has paid that death on our behalf in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? He mocks it. Why? Because he's placed his trust in Christ, and we've placed our trust in Christ. The debt's been paid. That means as you've done that and you're secure, the worst that can happen to us is if we leave today, we'll be as beautiful as Jesus Christ in his presence. And right now, these disciples get it. And it's a beautiful sight. So then what he decides to do is take them into a Bible study. He says in verse 46, thus it is, verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What he's doing here over this Bible study 
is doing, and it's the same pattern, again, that went on with Mary and the women, went on with the Emmaus Road disciples. He teaches them from the entire scripture the things concerning themselves. Verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalm must be fulfilled. The great late Anglican scholar Leon Morris states of this text, this indicates that there is no part of Scripture that does not bear its witness to Jesus. He sits them down, I imagine, like a rabbi. You know, he's going to teach his, his students the great truths. And what I believe he wants to get across to them is that as Christians... You don't want to rest your belief based on your experience alone. He's not interested in forming some esoteric clique in an elite group with a special knowledge of Jesus. No, he wants them to rest and ground their experience of his resurrection in the massive testimony of and perspective of Holy Scripture. And you know, tragically, one can believe in the resurrection and not have a saving faith. One can believe in the resurrection and not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus warned earlier in Luke 16, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Jesus' passion and resurrection only makes sense in the beautiful context of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is a very teachable moment (laughs) for Jesus. There's no daydreaming or nodding off, I imagine, in this Bible study. There's no Eutychus nodding off and falling out the window here. All right? He's teaching with divine illumination, because it says in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Because we've, we've heard in Luke before, in Luke 9, he would be teaching them straight. You know, I'm going to go die. I'm going to go die for you. We heard it all throughout Lent, right? And they didn't get it. Verse, chapter 9, verse 45, it was concealed from them so they may not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask about his saying. <laughs> but here on Easter night, the blinds are falling off. What a dynamic combination of the Holy Scriptures illuminated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what they learned that night in succeeding conversations during the next 40 days became the biblical substance for the apostolic preaching of their gospel and their mission. And we see in verses 46 that it's the gospel, okay, the good news, his passion and death from the law, the prophets, and the writing, and that it will go to be proclaimed in all nations, meaning the mission, beginning with Jerusalem. You start right here in Jerusalem, and the mission in the law, the prophets, and the writings. He's teaching them all about what they're going to need to know. So first, the gospel, the good news from the Old Testament in the law. Most clearly, we see his sufferings in the great institutions and the events of the law. According to Exodus 24... The old covenant was launched in a sea of blood from sacrificial animals which Moses doused the altar, the book, and the people. Remember that? In the following centuries, 
Oceans of blood flowed from the Jewish altars from suffering animals affecting an external ceremonial cleansing of those who are offering the offering. And these sacrifices all pointed to and were fulfilled in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. As the writer of Hebrew explains, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. So these daily sacrifices in the law pointed to and begged for the ultimate atoning sacrifice of Jesus for them and for us. In a similar way, the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12 prophesied of Christ's sufferings just before his death in the upper room on Monday, Thursday. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's making it clear that he's the Passover lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus then fulfilled the Passover to the letter as a male in his prime without defect who in the sacrificial process did not have any of his bones broken. And now, just as faith in the blood of the Passover land delivered the Israelites from the death, so faith in the blood of Jesus brings life. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we say it every communion service. Hallelujah. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. Where does that come from? 1 Corinthians 5, 7. In this connection, the entire tabernacle spoke of Jesus Christ. It's the epicenter of the tabernacle, the mercy seat, atop of the Ark of the Covenant. The blood was sprinkled, picturing Christ's atoning and propitiating work. Atoning, erasing our sins, making us one with God, and propitiating, meaning he takes his sin upon himself and puts his righteousness on us as we place our trust in that work that he's done for us on the cross. So in fact, 1 John says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. <laughs> My friends, it's all over the law, the good news of God in Christ's death for us and his resurrection. Next, the prophets. We heard Isaiah, Carol read for us Isaiah 53, to which the text referred to Christ directed his disciples in the upper room where he said of himself he was numbered with the transgressors thus directing their attention to the fact that every line of chapter 53 of Isaiah is describing Jesus's atoning work upon the cross the suffering servant is Jesus Christ it's all about Christ's passion and not only do the prophets detail with Christ's suffering, they also speak of his resurrection on the third day. Luke apparently was alluding to Isaiah 6-2, after two days he will revive us, this is verse 46, and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live with him. That's a direct quote from Hosea 6-2. That prophecy was given to an absolutely sinful, imperfect Israel. 
but there was nothing in their history to correspond to it, except that when Christ rose from the dead on the third day, he raised with himself believing Israel. That prophecy clearly points to Jesus. As Christ's body lay in the tomb for two days, and on the third day he rose again, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. The good news was in the law. The good news is in the prophets. The good news is also in the Psalms. On Good Friday, it's the standard psalm. This is why we do this on Good Friday. It's absolutely technical description of one dying on the cross centuries before Roman crucifixion was invented. But even more, it perfectly describes Jesus' experience, even to the detail of the soldiers gambling over his clothing, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. And the psalms also teach resurrection. As Peter explained in his sermon at Pentecost, he quoted the psalm we prayed this morning, verses 8 through 11. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Then on his Pentecost sermon, Peter goes on to explain that David did not fill this prophecy because he was rotting in the grave. But it's Jesus, the ultimate son, who did fulfill it because he rose before decomposition could even begin. And Peter concludes that with, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all his witnesses. Those, therefore, my friends, as the law was opened, their hearts began to ignite. The prophets were taught on. Those flames rose higher. And with Jesus mentioning the psalm, their hearts became a roaring furnace on fire for God, disciple, because this was for them as well as it is for us. And he didn't stop there. He went and talked about not only the death and resurrection, he talked about the mission of the gospel. Jesus showed them that the world was taught and mission was taught all throughout the scriptures. In the law, Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Sounds like mission to me. And this was accomplished through the ultimate offspring of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 3, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Therefore, we are Abraham's children. The nations of the earth are blessed with the spiritual riches of Abraham when we preach Christ. Mission is also found in the prophets. You see it in Isaiah 49. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles actually heard this in Acts 13, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And all of Christ's followers are charged to aid in bringing light to the Gentiles and salvation to the ends of the earth. And, and there's also an ancient mission message in the Psalms. Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. So you see what Jesus is doing? 
he's reaffirming, he's summing up three years of gospel, death and resurrection of Jesus, and mission, because 40 days from now, they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is going to go over to the entire known world. Because that's what it's for. He grounded them in it. And it's for everybody that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. They was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. You see, my friends, our message is not a philosophy. It's not a way of life even. What it is, is a historical claim based on good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. It was prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth, and we are to preach Christ and him crucified. Therefore, we're called, verse 48, to go and be his witnesses. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We are called to go, no matter where we are, in our very ordinary lives, and bear this message in our words and in our deeds. We're to be a mission people because meeting physical needs matters. We're the only worldview really that means people matter. You know, we are souls with a body, not bodies with a soul. See the difference? You are you. You are an eternal you. You are going to live forever. Your body's going to wear out. I hate to tell you, but it is. Mine's already begun. All right? But you are you. And God loved you this much. And therefore, any physical need you have is important. Any physical needs our neighbors had is important. And we should try to meet those needs. But that's not all. We are a soul. And therefore, since we will live forever, we want to live forever with the Lord and not the alternative. And we need to tell our neighbors because they're lost and they need to know this great truth. And he promised, my friends, that he would give us the Holy Spirit when we ask him. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And like my rector growing up would always say, it's not a matter of whether you have the Holy Spirit. The question is, how much does the Holy Spirit have you? Have you fully surrendered all your life to Jesus Christ. Because until you do that, God can't use you. God can't use you. And that's what he will do. He promises he will fill us. And you're not called to be Ravi Zacharias. You, you, I had so many people come to me and say, well, Gene, I just need to learn more. I just need to grow more before I can get to that place. Well, if that's your posture, you will never get there. You know? Why didn't you sign up for Express Your Faith then if that was that important to you? Okay? I'm not saying that to, to, to fault anybody. I'm just saying that. Look, if you wait for every discipleship opportunity and you complete them, you will never bear fruit. All you need is what you already have. Your giftings and God the Holy Spirit in you. And you let him fill you. So, for example, you got a real crotchety classmate you got a real crotchety boss or a coworker that you're really struggling with to encourage, to witness to. And all of a sudden, just a thought comes into your mind, do something nice. 
hey, I'm going out. Can I get you anything? You never asked that before. You got to start somewhere, right? You know? But you hate this person because they're a real pain in the you-know-what. Right? When you get a thought like that, it's probably of the Holy Spirit. Go with it. Ask them. Hey, I'm going out. Can I pick you up anything? Why are you asking me now? I, I don't know. I just, just am. You know, see what happens. Start to be extraordinarily kind to people. Letting the Holy Spirit work through you. And as you pray, come Holy Spirit, help me to have this kind of ministry to people who need you desperately. He will. He will use you. As you get in conversations, you just be a friend with people. It's an amazing thing what the Holy Spirit does with our kind of boring everyday lives. But see, life in gospel is not boring. It's not boring at all. It's exciting to see God using ordinary folk like us to fill ordinary seats like these because every empty seat breaks God's heart. So my friends, in closing, it's not an option for us. We're called to go be his witnesses. And therefore, there's work to be done. You have a group of relationships God has placed you in to affect the world as a disciple for Jesus Christ. And you have something to say. The world is dying and this world needs you. And the worse things become in our nation, the more relevant you are. We're called to be a gospel people compassionate, filled with personal conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it's not going to happen until we truly repent, truly admit to the Lord, okay, I've fallen short on this, help me, wherever it is in this message today. Take it to him. He's glad to receive you. He doesn't rebuke you with harshness. He rebukes you gently. He rebukes me gently. And the reality is, when America sees more repentance in the church, then the church will see more repentance in America. We're praying for revival. Well, maybe it starts with me. Maybe it starts with you. Let's just keep coming back to the cross, asking the Lord to use us and forgive us. In closing, I'd like to close with a story because I think the world is quite like this gentleman. In 1944, Second Lieutenant Hiru Onoda was sent by the Japanese army to the Philippine island of Lubang. And his orders were to resist the American advance and to fight on indefinitely. For in Japanese culture, it was a shame and honor culture. You come home victorious or dead. You don't come home losing. So with that in his culture and in his mind, he went to fight the American advance. But he never caught wind and never got the news that the Japanese had surrendered in World War II. So there on the Philippine island of Lubang, he keeps fighting the war. The Philippine police go up into the hills because the villagers are complaining about some crazy guy up in the hill who takes pot shots at him with his rifle. And so the police go up there to try to tell him, the war is over. He won't listen to him. So they send the Philippine army and a small squad to him. And he won't listen to them either. Well, they're thinking, well, he's just crazy. We're not going to kill him. But it is kind of dangerous. He still thinks the war is on. So they call the Japanese government, and they ship his brother over, his own flesh and blood. He walks up into the hills of the island of Lubang and says, Hiru, the war is over. 
He thought it was a trick. It's an American trick. This is what these Americans do. You can't trust them. And so finally, in 1974, 30 years later, they put his commanding officer back in his World War II uniform, hike him up into the hills. The guy is well into his 60s now. And says, Lieutenant LaRota, you will surrender. And he did. He obeyed his commanding officer. Friends, he never got the news. He got the news, but he didn't listen. They sent flyers, army officials, policemen. He spent 30 years of his life fighting a war that didn't exist. How many of our friends, maybe you, are fighting a war that doesn't exist? But how many of our friends have shut out the good news of peace and lost years of their life on a crazy cause? A lost cause. Jesus came to bring peace to our souls and peace on earth. He's been dropping leaflets now for 2,000 years through us. Let's go drop a few more, okay? And ask the Holy Spirit to use us. With the message, for crying out loud, stop fighting. Isn't it time to start living for a change? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you appeared to your disciples and you appeared to us through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our confusing and anxious world. And I pray that for some of us, we might fully surrender to you and that we would look at your scars and see you truly have risen from the dead. We can look at your word and see it testifies of you and of your grace and truth and see you for who you are, the God in skin and bones, full of such grace and truth, to give us life. And I ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that there's nothing we can do without you. And through that pouring out of your Holy Spirit, we have the Christ in us, the hope of glory, complete, utter satisfaction in you. And that's a hope that the world can't provide us. And we would pray you would give us that hope as we fully surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.